0: Hello and welcome to episode 57 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com and with me as always is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love podcast, which has a couple of new episodes just out. One of those new episodes is with WTA legend and co-founder Rosie Casals. So great time to check it out. Um, I'm sure he has many other... Exciting episodes for the next hundred planned as well. Um, Diving right into this last week of tennis, there were four clay court events this last week, two on the ATP side, two on the WTA side. Um, All of them were smaller events relative to the Monte Carlo Masters, which kicked off yesterday. But let's do a run through of these four events, talk about the, the finalists, the champions, and what we've learned about some of these players that normally wouldn't be in the winner's circle in in a bigger event. And I want to start in Houston with the U.S. Clay Court Championships. I think it was uh, Jeff McFarland, the guest co-host of the podcast, who made a comment about the U.S. Clay Court being kind of a a weird name because it's not really the championships of anything except for this one ATP Clay Court event in the U.S. But The only one.
1: Isn't it the only one?
0: Yeah, so it is the U.S. Clay Court Championships. Okay. Yeah, just like the the Basel is the Swiss Indoor Championships.
1: Yeah, there there is certainly no shortage of tiny tournaments claiming to be championships or something.
0: Yeah, and I and I think there is some history behind that. That once upon a time, most tournaments that are the notable tournaments now started as national events. So the French Open was the French Championships. Uh, and so on. The Swiss Indoors is a good example, uh, and I think that's where the, the U.S. Clay Court moniker comes from, from quite a while ago. What I didn't know, actually, was that the the U.S. Clay Court Championships, that concept has moved around a lot. It's only been in Houston since, I think, 2008, and before that, the River Oaks Club, where the Houston tournament is played, it's it's been hosting a tournament since 1910 or some, something like that, but before 2008, it wasn't ATP sanctioned, or at least for for a long time, until the the, the late 90s or early aughts. It, it wasn't part of the ATP tour, even though it attracted some pretty notable uh, notable names over the years. One of whom was Christian Rood, who won the tournament in 1996. Who is the father of Casper Rood, who was the finalist this year in Houston. So, got a little full circle Houston clay court action. Um, so Casper made the final. This is his first ATP final. Christian Garin of Chile won his first title. And Garin is someone who, if if you're if you're into tennis prospects, you've been hearing his name for a long time. Or maybe a better way to put that is you heard his name for the first time a long time ago. You might not have heard his name much in recent years. He won the Junior French Open in 2013, beating Alexander Zverev to do so. Uh, but didn't crack the top 100 until the end of last year and didn't make his first ATP final until a couple months ago and now his first title. So it's all happening pretty fast, but it took a long time. And I'm wondering, Carl, this isn't the way it's really supposed to work, I don't think. Like We expect to see players sort of gradually climb their way to the top or suddenly arrive at the top after their junior career like Alexander Zverev did, but Garin just seemed to have this, four-year gap of adjusting to the the senior game, struggling at challengers, looked like he might not ever really amount to anything, and now here he is in the top 60 ATP Tour-level finalist, or champion, rather. Can you think of anything that would explain that sort of jerky career trajectory?
1: I, I, I was at that junior final at the French Open in 2013, and it's always easier to remember when the conventional wisdom that you shared was right than when it was just dead wrong. But there certainly was a sense that Zverev was going to have the better career sooner, even though he lost that match. And I think part of it was just body type that it, it, he, he has a, a bigger, he's taller and stronger and, was going was going to just have an easier time holding serve, playing off of clay. And uh, I think I think that's proved mostly right, although it's it's still a strange trajectory. I mean, there are juniors who are very successful at that level and then can't cut it as seniors and then never really do much of anything. And Gareen has has stuck around, managed to get into some tour events, played a lot on clay. And so this break, this breakthrough is still a big breakthrough. It's very different than what he did before. But some people, six years after their, their breakthrough in juniors, might have moved on to, to something else.
0: Yeah, and it, yeah, that, that part of the career trajectory isn't that odd. There's always been players who, who were successful as juniors and then never really built on that. And I think we're seeing more of those these days. Uh, again, to bring up Jeff McFarland, he wrote something at Hidden Game of Tennis recently that that highlighted some of what that typical trajectory was from junior slam champion to the pros, and highlighted some players who uh, who are behind schedule or possibly never going to really make it the way that we're seeing Gareen pull it off now. Um, and you mentioned body type and. and it certainly helps to be, to be big, to have a big serve. It it especially helps if you want to win off of clay and Garina and Rude have, uh, have some things in common and they're both, they're both clay court first type of guys. Um, Not huge ground strokes, not huge serves, good court sense, really quick. Like the sort of thing that would make a surefire clay court specialist sort of Dirtball warrior twenty years ago, but there's not as many job openings on the ATP tour for those guys anymore. Um, so if 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 you're looking at Christian Green now is twenty three, I think, he's he's got this title, he's in the top sixty, so he's gonna be able to make it into a lot more tournaments now. Like what's the what's the potential peak for someone like him who's I mean, largely limited to clay?
1: Yeah, it doesn't feel that much higher. It's limited to clay. He also hasn't done much at the bigger clay tournaments. Um, the, the two finals he made were the tournaments with two of the weakest fields of the year. Uh, he wasn't, he wasn't blowing anyone off the court. Then again, I mean, he three weeks ago didn't look like he could do what he's done already. So we, we've seen a few breakthroughs that seem to come kind of out of nowhere uh on both the ATP and WTA so far in twenty nineteen. Maybe maybe his will, will have some staying power, but um at this point anyway, it seems hard to it seems unlikely that he would be breaking into like the top twenty five anytime soon.
0: Yeah, and one interesting parallel might be Pablo Andujar, who, you know, he's lost a lot of time recently to injury, but he also came back, one, made it to the final, rather, in Marrakesh this week. He's, he's always been kind of on the fringes, uh, been a guy who could really compete on clay, won some titles here and there. But, I mean, nobody ever really looked at Pablo Andujar and thought he would become the next... You know, really much of anything as a, as a threat at the top of the game. So never, never really a contender to be a top 20 type player. And it'll be interesting to see how some of these guys like Garine and Las Loggera, the, the players who were able to take advantage of what, as you say, felt like a pretty weak clay court field in South America, how they fare against the, the, the top notch competition in Europe, um, starting this week in Monte Carlo, although not for all those players. Um, and and going on to Rome and Madrid and some of the other smaller events in Europe that still have stronger fields than went to South America. Um, on, on Casper, like I said, he has a, a somewhat similar game, like not big ground strokes, not a huge serve. Like, I think he has a, a a little bit more power than Garin does, but still a, a clay core type guy, very fast. And it seems like really likes his Rafael Nadal. Like he, he's, he, and I'm, I was thinking about this watching the match that like, you hear a lot about the, the connection to Nadal. He trains at Rafa's academy and Rafa was his idol growing up. And that's not something you hear very much. I feel like when we hear about players' idols, we hear a lot about Federer. And then we hear some more about Federer. And then we hear a little more about Roger Federer. And do you think, do you think my sense of that is right? It, it doesn't seem like there's that many guys who are, are Rafa fans who are making it big on tour.
1: Yeah, although I, I think there is a distinction to be made between who a player idolizes and who a player copies or, or borrows from. So there is something about Roger that seems to resonate more with the younger players, or maybe like put another way, players who, who idolize Roger are more likely to, to make it to tour and ever answer that question in front of more than their parents or something. But... It, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not also taking a lot from Rafa's game, which is a more, maybe, modern game, even though it's also a very distinctive and unusual game. Do you
0: see other young players who are noticeably borrowing things from Nadal?
1: I mean, the the most... Notice so first of all, Nadal is a lefty, and I think it would be it's harder for a right hander to imagine borrowing from Nadal. Obviously, Root is, is an exception, but uh, the the things about Rafa's game that are most noticeable that he does the most during points that um, that like affect his advantage over different players rely on combining his his style with the fact that he's playing left-handed. And so, I mean, that, that limits to some extent people who can copy the whole Rafa experience. Like you can't um, combine, you, you can't like target a right-hander's backhand in the same way if you're a right-hander. Uh, so I think, I think that limits it. And I can't think of too many, are there any young lefties who remind me of Rafa particularly? I mean, I think the other thing is that Rafa's game is, is reliant to a large extent on the extreme topspin he can generate. And you can say, well, yeah, a lot of players try to hit a lot of topspin with their forehand and and uh, pressure their opponent and, and achieve big angles and, and push them back. Um, but what, what makes Rafa distinctive with that is is his ability to also flatten it out and be very aggressive and combine those two shots and also combine a lot of um, deception and occasional drop shots with his with his forehand once he has pushed someone out of position. So to be able to do all of those things at the same time, that's a big part of being an all time great. So it's it's hard to see a young player and expect them to kind of be able to have that complete of an arsenal. Um, so there are pieces that that remind me, um, there there's certainly some young players who hit with a ton of tops when you linked in around the net to some of the data from Miami, I think, about who had the forehands with the most topspin. Um, but you know, like Jack Sock, who's no longer all that young, has some Rafa elements to his game as a right-hander. But the the whole Rafa package is is pretty uh, specific to Rafa.
0: Yeah, I and mean, you kind of wonder whether Rafa has delayed like. The some overall decline in clay court play. I mean, we've been, I'm speaking, we in the general tennis community, although you and I have mentioned it as well, that there's been all this talk about the, the fact that surfaces are becoming more similar. We don't have clay court specialists. We don't have enough grass, we don't have enough of a grass season to have really grass court specialists. Uh, Hard courts are slowing down. So there's this, this kind of just this one surface, this one style of play. And, as I was hinting with the, the comments about guys like Garin, like that style of play isn't that friendly to old school clay court guys, so they end up being a bit marginalized. But then you have Rafa, who is so good at this sort of hybrid clay court style of play that he transcends all of that. He can dominate clay, but he's still a major threat on other surfaces, um, and and their limited variety of court speed. So I, I wonder if, if there hadn't been someone as, as unusual, all-time great type as, as Rafa, whether we would have seen the homogenization of, of men's tennis come even faster. Um, it, it feels like when Rafa's gone, the, the clay court specialists on tour are, are really just going to be a sideshow. I mean, it, it, do you think I have that right? Is that, is that something we're going to face when Rafa's no longer on tour?
1: It's intriguing. I, I have two questions about it. The first is, what is the mechanism by which Rafa sort of props up clay court specialists who are not Rafa's?
0: Well, he doesn't prop them up. But uh, all I mean is, if there were no Rafa, there wouldn't. It wouldn't be like David Ferrer wins eight French Opens. Uh, like. The, we would have maybe seen Del Potro win one, and Federer win a couple more, and Djokovic win a few. So everything we were, were saying about uh, about surfaces homogenizing, it would be reflected in the Roland Garros results and maybe the Rome Masters results. There wouldn't be this this one giant data point of clay court success coming from a clay court specialist.
1: I I get that. Yes, that that makes sense to me. Uh, and then what is your, you've written a few pieces about this, uh, this thesis that tennis has homogenized. W- what is the kind of current summary of your view based on your work of, of where that is? <laughs> That's, I'm not sure I
0: appreciate you bringing that up because <laughs> it's way easier to talk about if you accept the conventional wisdom that services are homogenizing, but based on at least some of the Jeff, data. Jeff, that... that
1: is not your brand to just accept the conventional laser.
0: No, I know. And, and, and that's why I put a butt in every sentence. Um, so yeah, the, the, a lot of the data that I've I've crunched does not support that. Um, that the, there's still a wide variety in ACE rates from surface to surface. And you always point out that there's there's other factors as well. And of course there are. Um, I, I think I looked at, rally length in charted matches from slam finals and and found there was a bit of a difference but um or th- there was some of this homogenization going on but at the same time that's a a really selected uh selected da- uh, sample because you end up just looking at the the rally length of grass court specialists on grass court and and clay court specialists on clay courts you never see like Sampras's rally length on grass versus Sampras' rally length on clay. You get Sampras on grass versus, I don't know, Andres Gomez on clay, which doesn't really tell you anything. So I don't think we have a clear answer to that. Uh, I mean, to some extent, you're right, my brand is not to accept the conventional wisdom, but at the same time, you have to give some weight to the fact that all the players think it's happening. Um, I mean, they should have a decent idea of the surfaces they're playing on. Although I'm not sure we should give the players too much credit for knowing what the surfaces were like in the 80s or 90s because they weren't playing then.
1: Maybe uh, just the children of, of people like Rude and Zverev who were... Yeah, be, because, because
0: when parents tell their kids about what it was like in their day, it's one of the most reliable types of evidence we have.
1: I can't believe all the courts were uphill and then covered in snow. It seems like it would have been very difficult. Yes, it would have been it would have been
0: difficult, but I mean, with a wooden racket, it, it worked both as a racket and a snow shovel, and a snowshoe, and a snowshoe. So yeah, you'd use four rackets, two for shoes, one one as a shovel and one as a racket, and to I me mean, that that's that's how John McEnroe won his five slams. How many slams did McEnroe win?
1: Uh, I think seven singles and seven doubles.
0: Okay. Well, wait. Doubles was a lot harder because there were so many rackets on
1: court to deal with the snow. <laughs> rackets everywhere. Yeah, a lot of volleying because it doesn't bounce well in the snow. I, you know, one one thing I've wondered about your work on this question, and you know, your point about like ace rates varying, and it does seem like the one thing the conventional wisdom does have wrong is treating these surfaces as as uh, homogenous among themselves and then different from each other, or that that's the ideal. Like, it seems like there's almost as much variation within clay as there is between clay and hard, or maybe more variation uh, within clay. And that that may also contribute to some of the confusion around it, that yes, there is a big distinction between fast grass and slow clay, but because there's so many different kinds of both those surfaces, and especially of hard and clay, That uh, that that makes it seem like we're we're blurring the lines. Yeah, it's definitely a continuum, and not just
0: three or four distinct and consistent categories. Um, And the other factor is that I think it it makes a lot more of a of a difference. The the surface makes a lot more difference to the results of play. The longer a point lasts, Um, and in general, points are pretty short these days. I mean, to some extent, they've always been. Pretty short in a lot of professional tennis, but jumping ahead a little bit, the the Bogota final yesterday between Amanda and and Astra Sharma, that was on clay, although it's high altitude, and the average rally length in that match was two point four, which means we're not—I'm not even sure "rally" is the right word to use to describe whatever that was. Uh, but if if it doesn't matter what surface you're playing on, if if you're serving big and returning big, so the rallies rarely go past a third or fourth shot, Like, does it even really matter that much? I mean, th- there's going to be some effect on how the serve bounces and how fast the return bounces, but it seems like the the more dominant the serve, the, the less surface matters, regardless of whether the difference between surfaces is
1: changing. I hear you, although, I mean... The- you're the guy using ace rate to judge surfaces. So I guess we, we use what we got.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're right. We, we use it. We accept that it's, it's limited because I don't really know what else we can use. I mean, I I have looked at just using, uh, surf points one in general, and usually it works out about the same. It's just, it's, it's, it's not as easy of a number to use because there isn't as much variation. I mean in in ace rate you have the range from about 0 to 20% of surf points and surf points 1 you get a range of like maybe 55 to 75 which now that i say it, it's the same 20 points. Maybe i can't make that that case very strongly, but it's always made a lot more sense to me to use ace rate. But yeah, i mean it, we have to accept the fact that using the match stats that were collected for the last 30 years or so for for men's tennis and the last maybe five years for women's tennis, it's, it's not that much data to answer this question. So we may never really be able to, to, to have a sophisticated answer. Um, the charting data will help, but even then we're limited by the number of, of matches we can chart with available video from that era. Uh, and having Hawkeye data from right now is going to do wonders for quantifying the difference between surfaces, but it can't tell us anything about the difference in, in services from before the Hawkeye era.
1: So yeah, we're stuck with what we got. Um, just one, one other thought is like, are, are we just it? One other theory of what's going on is that players have just gotten a lot better at adjusting to different surfaces. So it looks homogenous because we see the same people. Um, I mean, I think we've talked about this a little bit recently, but it seems like at least that's one potential theory for for why it looks like the courts are pretty different, but people are complaining that we're seeing uh, the same basic cast of characters at the top.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's true. Uh, and I mean, just anecdotally, going back to the back to the '90s, when a lot of the clay court guys chose not to play Wimbledon, uh, yeah, I mean p- players would spend most of their time on one surface if they could. So now, if you're a top player, it's part of your job to learn how to play on every surface, and I think you can get away with not doing that uh, at at various times in the past. So, so yeah, that's that that that's a factor as well. It's 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 just a tough question. Um, it's easier just to fall in with the conventional wisdom and and nod along as the commentators recite it for the hundredth time. Um. Anything else in the Houston final? I think that was that was all I had. Um, I do think it'll be interesting to see how these guys transfer over to hardcore. One thing that struck me looking at the the updated ELO ratings was Gareen is I think he's in the top 50 in the overall ELO ratings, and he's in the top 30 on clay, which seems fair, I guess, to be inside the top 30, although not much higher than that. What struck me is that Casper Ruud now got this final under his belt, and he's still outside the top 100 in Elo, probably higher on clay. But um, but Elo is reminding us that he did not have to face particularly difficult opponents to get there. Uh, it doesn't give him credit for absolutely wiping the court with Marcel Granoyer, but uh, but it does acknowledge that he didn't really face much in the way of, of high quality clay court competition. Um. But speaking of high-quality clay court competition, we don't have a lot to say about Marrakesh, but the biggest result from the other ATP event this week was Alexander Zverev losing in the early rounds to, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but Hal Uh And we've touched on Zverev a few times this year on the podcast. And yes, it's an ATP 250. Yes, it's his first couple of matches on clay. But Carl, are we getting to the point where we should start worrying about
1: Zverev and his status as a top three, top four player? No, not really. I mean, I, there isn't really that much threatening him from below. Like, Federer has a good shot to pass to Zverev in the rankings at some point in the next few months, but I think we need to see a lot more of a drop-off. I mean, this is a guy who won the tour finals in November and has only played a few tournaments since then, and one of them he made the final in Acapulco. So... I, you know, he's had a lot of ups and downs since entering the top five a few years ago, two years ago, and he seems to have that characteristic of many of the top players of not particularly letting a disappointing result shake him for the next tournament. So now he's had, I guess, three in a row. That that thesis seems less, less strong, but... Uh, he he had a really good run at the Clay Court Masters last year. Let's see how he does there before before declaring any sort of crisis. And then he gets a free pass at the French Open because no one is expecting anything from him these days at Grand Slams. So he um, yeah he has a lot of points to defend coming up. He's still comfortably in the top five, and I I'm not yet particularly worried.
0: Do you think we'll see him in a Masters final in Madrid or Rome?
1: Or Monte Carlo, I guess. Yeah, I do. I, I mean, like, it's pr- probably really what I mean is that it's almost 50% probability. There are a lot... Nadal is going to potentially grab three of those six title spots. Djokovic is, is looking strong again. And uh, and team is always a threat. So there there might not be that many up for grabs. But I, I am I definitely expect at least a semifinal. So what,
0: what would constitute a disappointing clay court season for him then?
1: Uh, I think anything in which he wins fewer than two-thirds of his matches. Okay. I have to think for a second about what that means in terms of rounds. Well, it depends. Like, he could win a title and, and flame out the next week, and that would probably be better for him overall. Um yeah, that's true.
0: Um, yeah, I'm sure we'll we'll come back to this one, and I mean, of course, he could. I, mean, I, I don't see him winning Monte Carlo since that's that's Rafa's game, but uh, we could see him winning a Masters in a, in another few weeks and be having a totally different conversation about Zverev. Um, let's switch over to the the Bogota final that I I mentioned in passing a few minutes ago. As I've already told you, it had an extremely short average point length of of 2.4 shots, which is slightly influenced by a lot of double faults, especially from Astra Sharma. But even if you take out the double faults, it's I mean still a serve and return dominated match. So I think there's there's a lot to talk about with that, with the playing style that this this. Really big attacking return game, but let, let's start with uh, with something a little more general. Amanda Anisimova, American, she's seventeen. She doesn't turn eighteen until I think the end of August. So, I mean, even even in terms of tour ready seventeen year old, she's still kind of young. Um, I mean, it, 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 we've been talking this year about Andreescu and Yastrzemska and Sabalenka and I mean Osaka. There's so many so many talented young players in the WTA. Do you think Enesimova stacks up with, with these? I mean, is she potentially as good as these, these other women who are making such a splash this year?
1: Yeah, I think it's possible. I mean, I think this is yet another tournament this week where we need a couple of asterisks to cover just how weak the field was. I don't think she faced a top 100 player, and she wasn't particularly dominant against those players outside the top 100. She she struggled through the the tournament, and... Uh, only once, one in straight sets. So, you know, th- not adjusting my view too much based on this event, but it's she. She's got a lot of of games. She's not. I think some younger players, was, some of the younger players you just talked about are also quite aggressive, and that to me bodes well for what they can do as they as they develop everything else. Um, and yeah, I mean, she was a big reason why it was a 2.4 shot average rally length in the final and she's I think higher ranked than anyone um, younger than her in like the top 200 something like that so she's she's got a lot of she's already way out in front in her in her age group as you pointed out maybe she's not expected to improve all that much from here to 18 but um, even within that age group she's she's doing very well in terms of development. Yes, I,
0: I, I'm i to blame for a really vague note in our, our our show notes, but you jumped ahead to what I wanted to talk about next, that in the last couple of weeks we've been talking about aging trajectories with Bianca Andreescu, who's 18, and Felix Aliasim who's who's 18, and trying to get a sense of, of how good a player is going to be if we're seeing them post such strong results as 18-year-olds. And it's natural to think, okay, if we're going to make these projections... For 18-year-olds, we can make even more optimistic projections for 17-year-olds. And to some extent, that's true. But I did go back to those numbers and find that there's not a huge difference uh, from from 17-year-old performance to 18-year-old performance. So so I think I, I came to the conclusion that for Andreescu, we could predict her to, to peak 70 ELO points higher than where she's at right now. For Enesimova, it's like 90 or 100 so given what she's doing right now, if we just treat her as an average average of the 17-year-olds who can play at tour level, I mean, there's no algorithms that's going to say she's headed straight for the top. Um, that doesn't mean she won't. It just means that she has to continue being an outlier, um, which, of course, she could be or she could flame out or she could get injured and lose a year like CeCe Bellis has. I mean, there's just so many paths that we, we can't predict, but she's at least... As you point out, she's she's far ahead of her her age cohort. Uh, do you I mean, you point out that she played a really weak slate of opponents? No one in the top one hundred, um, including a, a Colombian wild card in the quarterfinals, who's also seventeen and doesn't have as much experience or probably skill as Anisimova has. Uh, but on the flip side of that. Do you give her more credit for, this This is an American who probably has most of her career training on hard courts. Do we give her some credit for having this success on a clay
1: court? Yeah, I mean, I think this goes to this idea of versatility, but even to, to show up and find out is impressive. Like, I, I don't think anyone would have faulted her if she weren't playing last week. Given the the schedule and, and the nature of the tournaments, and her ranking is high enough that she can kind of pick and choose. Although she may have signed up for this um, with a lower ranking, but yeah, I think it was it was impressive that she she showed up and and fought through those matches all the way to the title.
0: So let's let's talk about this this big return game. We've mentioned the the rally length. You said that she was responsible for a lot of that, and it it seemed like. Like she was often just, I mean, she was treating the return the way a lot of players treat a serve. Like, even though Sharma's a pretty big server, hits some sharp angles, and I, I don't think it's that easy to read, uh, Anisimova would would reach forward and go for a winner on what felt like like every point. And, and you've pointed out that these other young women, Yastremska, Sabalenka... Um, Shiantek, who we can talk about as well, who made the Lugano final, a lot of them fit into this mold, being extremely aggressive. Do you think this is the direction the WTA is heading? Just big serves and bigger returns?
1: Well, we've we've definitely identified a lot of promising players with that approach. We've also acknowledged all the top players who who don't have that approach and have succeeded nonetheless in, in winning slams and being, reaching number one or, or close to it. So um, I, I hope that we continue to have a diversity of approaches. Um, you know, th- this one has its shortcomings at times aesthetically, although it, it's also can be just breathtaking and, and bold. And, you know, one of the things that I think that the best practitioners of it share is the ability to go for broke, even on a shot where most people might be going be hitting defensively, sometimes miss wildly and just move on to the next point the same way you might expect someone to if they you know had played an eight shot rally and been outmaneuvered into a forced error or something Uh, the result is the same you lost the point so it makes sense to react the same way but I think it can be still be difficult emotionally to cope with having just gone for something unconventional and missed in a way that would embarrass many players so I really admire that that part of it as well, that the, the, the way it um, doesn't seem to affect these players and, and make it easier for them to do exactly the same, use the exact same approach, probably not with the exact same shot on the next point.
0: It is sort of a funny solution to the age-old problem of, of staying in a groove or... or... not sure I feel like there's a a commentary phrase that I'm I'm forgetting right now but when when players do make a lot of quick errors in succession we usually think that they that they've gone out of their game they've lost focus or something and it's it's hard to get that back or difficult to predict when they'll get that back but I guess the solution to that problem is just never make very many shots in a row (laughs) like go go for so much all the time that you're it's just the nature of the sport that you're, you're going to have to be the type of player who might miss five shots in a row and then come back and reel off ten in a row. So you just kind of take that mental dilemma out of the equation entirely, which I mean, for some players I think it would have been a big benefit to them at some point in their career. And for someone like Yastrzemska or maybe Samova, I don't think that's an issue they're ever going to have, that kind of streakiness or the streakiness being a problem. They'll have the streakiness because they're so reliant on, on high, high risk, low percentage shots. Um, do you think that like we've said there, there are all these women with, with aggressive return styles. You point out that there's plenty of, of women from maybe the generation before or so who have gone to win, win slams despite having very different styles. Uh, I guess one interpretation is that we have we have a new generation coming with a new style. Another another interpretation is the players like Simona Halep or Agnieszka Radvanska or Kellen Wozniacki. Those players take longer to develop. Do you think that could be what's going on? That there are talented 18-year-olds out there with more passive styles and they're going to reach the top of the game, but we just don't know who they are yet?
1: Uh, I look forward to the post in which you trace where the um, Simona Halep and and Svitolina and Wozniacki were at age 18, and then we can really make that case. I mean, Wozniacki is is a counterexample for sure, because she was a teenager, I think, when she first turned number one. Uh, So I don't think it's it's inevitable. But yeah, I mean, that's definitely one hypothesis. And your aging posts uh, suggest that the, just as the players who are the best at age 18 don't, aren't always the best at age 25, vice versa.
0: Yeah, it is tricky, and it's one of those where I'm I'm always tempted just to throw up my arms before even trying because, as, I mean, you point out correctly that Wozniaki broke this mold that I'm hypothesizing. I'm sure you can find other examples as well. Uh, but as soon as you go back especially 20 years, but even 10, 15 years in, in WTA time, that feels like eons. That's I'm not sure that the, the 2009 WTA in which Wozniacki rose to the top has a ton to tell us about the 2019 WTA. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's probably worth trying either way, but I'm not sure how confident I would be in the conclusion based on that data, especially when you're blending it with data from the 1999 WTA and the 1995 WTA and so on. Just um, such a different talent pool and different tactics and and, I mean, different everything.
1: One thing I wanted to mention very, very micro about Anisimova's game, just because it was so striking to me watching the final. Uh, What did you make of her backhand down the line? I'm not sure I had any thoughts about her backhand down the line. What did you notice? This is this is part of why it's fun to uh, compare notes after a match we both seen. It it seemed from with admittedly with some influence from the commentator uh, that she was particularly aggressive with that shot, which is saying something. And and in that match had good results. Your your charting shows match charting project tennis tennis match charting project check it out. Um, shows that she went for eight and hit five winners, which is incredible. And that had me wondering what do all the matches that have been charted show about that shot of hers. And she has I think twelve matches charted, so decent number, but not not as many as Novak Djokovic, let's say, who's famous for his backhand down the line. But in those twelve charted matches, thirty one percent of her backhands down the line have been winners. And Djokovic that percentage is, do you wanna guess? Mm twelve. Eight. A- guess. Yeah. Did you see what the the overall WTA rate was? Oh, right. Because I can hover over because that's one of the cool things. The tour average is eighteen percent, so it seems higher on the WTA than the ATP. Uh, and is still well ahead of it. But yeah, that's a good point. The tour effects are big here.
0: Yeah, I think that in on on the men's tour there's. It's never really a rally shot the back end down the line, but it can be it can be more of a strategic like shot before the winner type shot, whereas when the women hit that shot, they're going for broke uh, at least compared to the men so I'm not surprised that there's a difference but wow, if one out of three is a winner that's that's one heck of a weapon
1: and she's also you know some players would would achieve that by just going for it less and, and going for it only in the most promising moments. But she she hits it 13% of the time relative to a tour average of
0: 11%. Ah, wow. And you wonder too when, uh, I mean, this, this would require more steps in the analysis, but if, if many of her matches have such short rally lengths like this last one, then her opportunities might be even riskier because uh, you figure that if she's hitting those as a third shot or a fourth shot, then maybe she hasn't really generated the the, the sort of opportunity that Djokovic does when he hits his, uh, or Simona Halep does when she hits hers. So maybe that isn't even a, a comparison that should favor her.
1: Yeah, and she's, you know, you mentioned aggressive returning, and I think she's doing it on return fairly often. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's that's scary stuff. Uh, it will be interesting to see whether she's able to, to take this the success to the the slower clay or the lower altitude clay in in Europe as well because I don't know what her official rating ranking is now. I know she's up to number thirty in the the Elo rating, which is awfully good for someone who's seventeen. Uh, I think she's ranked twenty second. Really interesting. That's a that's a lot of points
1: for not a lot of well no upset wins anyway this week. Oh, no, sorry. I'm, I'm misreading the live ranking site. No, she's she's quite a bit lower down than that. She's 53rd. Apologies. Okay. That,
0: that seems better. So one more thing about Bogota. Um, we talked a lot about underarm serves last week. And uh, Sarah Arani just sent the news racing way ahead of our speculation. And it, it, I, I unfortunately, I haven't gotten a chance to watch any of these matches, which sound... Totally fascinating. So Irani is struggling mightily with her serves. Uh, When she's not hitting underarm serves, she's getting to double-digit double faults in every match. When she switches to underarm serves, she's still double faulting quite a bit. But in her second-round match against uh, Bibiana Schufz, which I'm certainly not pronouncing correctly, um, I think she had 35 underarm serves. uh, Just really out-there numbers. And Carl, did you get a chance to watch any of those? No, I haven't seen them. Yeah, we've we, we've got to get some analytics on that. We got a chart for the the, the second round match I talked about, but uh, but there's there's no accommodation in the match charting template to, to track underarm serves. So so we we need to get that fixed and start tracking this stuff, and then obsessively follow Sarah Irani for as long as she keeps hitting underarm serves, but. Um, we have this weird nexus where the, the cutting edge of tennis is happening between Sarah Arani and Nick Kyrgios. Uh, um, future mixed doubles team. <laughs> yeah. I would also love to see Arani play doubles with Monica Niculescu at Roland Garros. That would make my year. So let's see. The other WTM at this week was in Lugano. Um, Polona Herzog was the winner. the The finalist was Iga Swiatek, and Swiatek is worth mentioning because she's also 17. She's just a few months older than Enisimova. Um, Lugano was a little bit different of a of a surface like, because it's it's not as high altitude, and I think that just the clay's a little different as well. It was a slower surface, but Swiatek is another big hitter, uh, l- taking a lot of chances. The, main difference was that she really likes drop shots so she would be alternating these these big ground stroke returns with drop shot returns or I mean, drop shots by the, the the second or third shot um, just wasn't quite enough to to take the final but that's another another name to watch so unlike unlike christian garin who took five years to go from junior slam champion to the, the brink of the top 100 we have these women who are pretty much going straight from juniors to being insta-threats on tour. Um, one thing I did not put in our show notes that I, I can't believe I forgot. Carl and I have been, have been furiously emailing about a post I wrote on the Heavy Topspin blog last week about Caroline Wozniacki's
1: serve pattern. Jeff, and, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because I was about to say, how did you not put this on the show notes? Let's let's talk about this until the end of the show. It's incredible. Yeah, I think I think I didn't put it
0: on the show notes because I I, I knew we would talk about it anyway. Um, so instead, we'll just talk about the show notes a lot. So let me briefly summarize, and then Carl, I want to know everything you think about this. Um, so. The revelation is this, that Wozniacki follows exactly the same first serve pattern um, virtually 100% of the time. So, the first four points of every service game, she always goes wide serve to the forehand, t serve to the forehand, t serve to the backhand, wide serve to the backhand. So, wide, t t wide, or forehand, forehand, backhand, backhand, and over the last... I mean, she's done this her whole, her whole career, but it's even more pronounced recently. The last couple of charted matches we have, basically 100%, 100% of the time. Every match, there's one or two exceptions that might just be because uh, uh, the returner is running around the, the the serve. But the the particularly weird thing about it is that the pattern ends after the fourth shot. So from the fifth shot on, she's almost completely random. So it goes from 95% of the serves going the same direction to 52% after that, basically basically a 50-50 shot. Uh, and in case you're wondering, as you naturally would, maybe there are other players who have these sorts of patterns. Some players do have mild tendencies in one direction or the other, but no one does anything like this. And the ones who do have strong tendencies generally just like to serve to the backhand or they like to serve wide more than they like to serve down the tee. Or Justine Henna um, really likes serving down the tee, not serving wide. So so they, they're they not 50-50 shots. They're not random on every point, but they're nothing like what Wozniacki is doing. I mean, it's, it's truly one of a kind. And it's been going on for so long that you have to assume that returners know what's happening and we know at least in one case that the returner definitely does know what's happening because uh, we, we discovered this I'm, I'm saying we to uh, not not attempting to take credit from from um, from the charter who charted the Wozniacki-Siegman match in Charleston uh, that Laura Siegman's coach came down to court and reminded her that Wozniacki was following this pattern so you got to figure that's not the only coach and player who know about this on tour. Opponents have to know what's coming. Wozniacki must know that they know, but she's still doing it uh, virtually all the time. So, I mean, what do we make of this, Carl?
1: So the charter is keys,
0: right? K-E-E-S? Yeah, another the... another word that I cannot hope to pronounce. <laughs> maybe it's keys. Maybe it's something totally different. I don't know. Yeah, we're not
1: sure about the accent marks. Yeah, I so I'm... It's a little weird because there are things I don't want to, I would feel like I'm repeating because I've emailed you, but would not be repeating on the show. Um, But I think I still am where I was in the last message of just not being able to get over what you just said about how apparently this is known at least widely enough that a coach would come down and tell her player or remind her player in a tone of, not, I mentioned this to you before the match because I'm brilliant and discovered this, but in the tone of everybody knows this, all of her coaches know this, all of our players know this, I'm just telling you the thing you already know. Uh, and yet, this player who's been, I don't know, number one for maybe the second most weeks in the last decade, who's who won the Australian Open last year using this tactic to an extreme, that she like finds success doing this thing that runs counter to everything that is both conventional wisdom and seems like wisdom to me about the element of surprise in tennis. That if if you announced before every shot where it was going to go, that that would be an enormous disadvantage. And yet here is the most important shot. And the first four points, which are not the most important points, but they still can be important, um, in games that can be incredibly important, you are basically announcing here's where you should expect the shot to go. I I just, I, I, I cannot understand how this is an advantage. Is it possible she would have had an even greater career if she didn't do it? I mean, I just have so many strategic questions here.
0: So let's, let's flip the question a little bit. I mean, since I'm not that great of a tennis player, I'm just kind of good at, at making spreadsheets. So, I kind of assume that these players and coaches know a lot of stuff that we don't know. Uh, At least that I don't know. I don't want to take away credit from you, Carl, but if let's say that, that maybe Wozniacki is a genius. Maybe she and her dad have really thought this through. Maybe they've even run some numbers. Maybe they have some consultant we don't know about. And they've arrived at the conclusion that this pattern is optimal or that it's optimal for her or that it's working. I mean, what what would be the logic
1: that would support this <sighs> yeah i mean that is that is probably the better way to frame it right like let's let's try to be our smartest tennis selves understanding we can't be a tennis coach or a professional player what what, what could underpin this what could make this a successful move i mean the first level is there could be a tactic that seems optimal until everyone knows about it. So if everyone had just managed to miss this, I'd be less confused. It's like this genius thing that no one's figured out, partly because it's not like she does this 100% of the time on each of these first serves. She's doing it something like 75 to 85% of the time. Although in the last couple of years, it's really close to 100%. Yeah.
0: I mean, a lot of the individual matches I looked at, like, well, certainly the Siegmund match the Monica Nicolescu match from Miami, and then you asked me about the final and semi-final from the Australian Open that she won last year. Those four matches, basically every single serve in the first four points of the game went the, the, the predicted direction. The only uh, one interesting example that, that is, is worth discussing is the most recent charted match we have for her, which is the Charleston final against Madison Keys in which she really deviated from the pattern more than she had uh, in, in any charted match for some time. And that was a, a match where where Keyes was really aggressive on the return, won a lot of points with return winners. Um, I don't know whether that's because Madison was was guessing correctly. Maybe guessing is the wrong word. <laughs> was, was reacting knowingly to the pattern and taking advantage of it um, or something else was going on. But in general, like,
1: it, it it is clockwork basically. Yeah, I, it's it's um, I, I, I guess like two two th- a few thoughts come to mind. One is that the serves could still differ. So. I can go out wide or I, I can't do very much of my serve but she can go out wide with different spins and different pace and 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 still different placement uh, to the extent that players can be precise with these things. So at le- you know like she can uh, a returner can think she knows everything she needs to know about the serve and still be thrown off so so that's one thing. Another thing is that we we have heard over the years from players, in this sport and others that there are advantages to limiting the number of things you have to consciously think about and decide. So to the extent that she doesn't have to, she's down, you know, love 15 or 1530, she's not stressing about how important it is to get this next decision right on serve because she already knows what she's going to do. And that maybe that makes it easier to execute. Maybe that's true in general and maybe it's especially true for her. So she benefits more and that's why she's the one doing it. Uh, and then my my last thought is, it is notable to me that a coach came down and said, hey, remember that thing. Um, I, I think you and I have talked about some examples of where a coach told a player something ahead of a match and then noticed that the player basically forgot it because there are just so many other things that a player could be thinking about. In a, And one of those things is I shouldn't be thinking about anything because that will hurt my game. Um, So it's possible that players often forget for much or all of the match, and that when they don't forget, it it pulls out that conscious thinking again, which is not the thinking most conducive to executing a really good, aggressive return. Um, And I I guess one one side note is, I think so far we only know this for first serves, and within any four-point stretch, there's probably going to be at least one second serve. And maybe that throws players uh, opponents off enough that they forget the pattern,
0: yeah, the second service is, is an issue um, what also I, I I hadn't thought about this explicitly until now that it, a lot of the the example the example matches I've mentioned Nicolescu, Zegemund Halop in the Australian Open final and to some extent Elise Mertens in the australian open semifinal um Especially the first three. Mertens is tricky. They're they're not that aggressive, so they don't make their money off of hitting big returns. Uh, Madison Keys does. I mean, we had a whole segment before about how Anna, Amanda Anisimova follows his pattern, and and some of the other young women do as well. It would be interesting to look at the Wozniacki specific tendencies in matches against those players, like maybe maybe against Osaka or Sabalenka or someone like that. A, is it hurting her against those players? And B, um, is she is she varying things, like she seems to have done against Madison Keys? Uh, because maybe the issue is that, it, as particularly on clay, particularly some of these women we're talking about, they're not focused on getting a huge advantage out of the return. Like Nicolescu, especially, she's chipping most of her returns back. I mean, she's chipping most of her shots in general, but... Um, but her game isn't about looking for an opportunity to crush you as soon as possible. Uh, so whatever small advantage she'd get from knowing which way to lean on the serve return doesn't really matter that much. All she's going to do is just maybe not miss quite as often on the return. So maybe there isn't that much of an impact. Uh, but again, we, we we need to look at the data we have more or, or get more data to... Uh, than we already have, which is already a pretty substantial amount.
1: I mean, I guess one thing that that really throws me... Like, yes, she's been an incredibly successful player. She won a Grand Slam title doing this and got, got back to number one. If it's widely known that she does this, and it's a relatively easy thing to rip off, like, you know, another player... It, it's not like trying to get... She isn't one of the best backhands in the world. It, another player can't just decide I'm going to have her backhand, but another player could decide, you know, 20 minutes before the match, I'm going to try that thing she does. Uh, And maybe the way you're looking at the data, like that wouldn't pop immediately. But if, if it's happening, it's no one's sticking with it. Like, and and it's, it's hard to understand why this would work specifically with her. I mean, I think she does have a a pretty good serve and she does have variety. And so if my theory that like, she's mixing up other things is, is at work, then that, that could help. But I, she doesn't have the best she doesn't have you know probably one of the top ten or twenty percent of serves so there are other players it seems like who could who could mix something like this in and see if it works for them well that's what I wonder too is is I think it works because she doesn't have
0: a great serve like if it works um because if you're take the the absolute extreme if you're John isner then so much of your success depends on simply hitting your serve past people and one of the ways you do that is keep them off balance. So if Isner were to adopt this strategy, I'm assuming people would pick up on it pretty quickly, and they'd be leaning the right way on almost every serve. And players are already having to guess to return an Isner serve. So if all of a sudden they're guessing right most of the time, a ton of Isner's advantage goes away. So if you assume the same logic holds for most of the biggest servers, maybe we could put Serena and Osaka in in that bucket on the the WTA side, then the players who can get away with this, like, their success on serve can't depend on surprise. And I think logically that means it can't depend on having that big of a serve. So the benefit must come from something else. And your point is a good one, that it could be that she's mixing up other aspects of the serve, but even still, like, Yes, she's mixing it up, but she's still giving her opponents this implied clue in which direction to lean, which narrows down the scope of potential returns they have to hit quite a bit. Uh,
1: two two th- thoughts that that from yeah. me: one is, and I think you hinted at this in our email exchange or said this that you know there isn't like a linear growth in benefit as you grow your speed of serve. So, like below a certain speed the opponent is going to have enough time to react and it's more about how they're going to react and are they going to be uncomfortable and so on. And it could be that for a lot of her deliveries, it's not, even if players are, do not know which side it's going to go to, they're going to get to it. And some players even can do better when they're moving to the ball than when they're standing still where the ball is. So, um, it could be that her server's is just in a speed range that works. Again, there's still a lot of WTA players for, for whom that would apply if that's the case. Um, and then the second thought may come back to me, but in the meantime, we're close to the hour anyway. Yeah, it feels like a good time to wrap it up. Um, but yeah,
0: your, your point that players haven't picked this up is it's very strange that, if anything, Wozniacki seems to have doubled down. Like, it the 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 charting data we have isn't completely representative we've got about 110 matches i think and that's mostly skewed towards the last few years so the earlier matches we have are are more like slam finals against against the best opponents like they're not a representative sample of how she was playing in say 2009 or 2010 but uh, it seems like she's becoming even more predictable over the years so whatever she thinks is working um uh, Nothing is disproving that for her. But as you point out, no one else is really picking this up themselves. So if players know about it, somehow it's something that works for Wozniaki but other players don't think would work for them. And that, that to me is the deepest mystery of all. That there's this we know that players are constantly watching each other to pick up tactics, their coaches are are talking, like there's there's this this whole world that's discussing ways to optimize on court play. And this this one weird thing is not following that pattern or getting getting sucked into that vortex. So definitely something we'll need to, to keep an eye on. I'll, I'll dig some more into the numbers. Maybe we'll we'll learn more about how it's working or whether it's working or maybe Arena Sabalenka will blast her off the court when they meet in Stuttgart and Wozniacki will be too ashamed to be so predictable ever again. And it'll be a moot point. Lots of possibilities. A lot of them do involve Arena Sabalenka winning matches though, just to warn you um but yeah as carl says we're we're at about that time so we didn't get a chance to talk about monte carlo but let me summarize rafael nadal's playing the tournament is on clay he's probably gonna win so with that out of the way carl thank you as always for joining me thanks jeff and listeners, be sure to check out the new 30 Love episodes as well as the the post on the Heavy Topspin blog that inspired this whole Caroline Wozniacki surf predictability discussion. So lots of stuff for you to do until next week's episode, which hopefully will be here in seven days time or so and wrap up the Monte Carlo Master Tournament for you, as well as the Fed Cup semifinals, which I, I don't start for five or six days, but I completely forgot about until just now. So there's that too. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next week.